Welcome to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge, the fiercely nonpartisan discussion that seeks policy solutions to issues of the day. Rich is a successful entrepreneur in the technology, health, and finance space. He and his wife, Leslie, are also philanthropists with interest in civic and artistic endeavors with a primary focus on medically and educationally underserved children. And welcome back to The Common Bridge. This is part two, the continuation and the final part of Rich's interview with author Thomas Frank. When we join them in conversation, Rich and Thomas are talking about the failure of the Democratic Party after the 2016 election and what they probably missed and maybe what they should have done. So now we join them in conversation. The thing that struck me is that following the 2016 election, there was like a doubling down. This is the the party that said, uh, you know, a certain part of your voters are deplorable. They're irredeemable. They're not worth appealing to. And following the election, instead of saying, hey, we missed something, we need to go to Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania and find it, we, we, we missed something. There was like almost like a doubling down of, well, wait a minute, they really proved how dumb yeah. they are and how misinformed and how emotional, because it wasn't a problem with we, the Democrats, it was a problem with you, the voters, aren't good enough or smart enough to vote and for us. People said that. They said exactly what you just described, that you are not exaggerating. There's a, a whole chapter of the people know it's the last chapter of the book is filled with quotations from leading pundits and thinkers saying exactly that, uh, that the problem is not that the Democrats failed the people. It's that the people failed the Democrats, which is like, whoa, you know, that's that is so upside down. I just want to take a step back. Hillary Clinton made the famous <clears throat> or the notorious deplorables remark and right away figured out that she'd put her foot in it, that this is not something that you that a politician who's counting on, you know, in a democracy. This is not something that a politician should say. And she tried to take it back. You remember, she tried to get out of it and apologize for it. What's fascinating to me is that so many of the thinkers and supporters of the Democratic Party were like, no, that was exactly right. It was a prepared remark. She did it twice. When you say double down on it, I think they've done considerably more than that. It's it's like uh, uh, people want to identify you know, not just to say that Donald Trump was a bad president, which I think he was, but that people who voted for him were sinful. They were depraved in some way for having done that. And, you know, I think a lot of them probably are bad people. That's There's 70 million of them. But I know personally people who voted for him. I know they're not bad people. They may have been deceived. They voted for a guy who was a lousy president. I didn't vote that way. But to attack the people for making a wrong decision, I think is is such a strange turn. And yet, like you say, doubling down on it, the Democrats then proceeded to invent all sorts of excuses for why they lost in 2016, mm-hmm. rather than look this thing in the face and say, you know, look, we lost Wisconsin. That one really blew my mind because I don't know if you've ever been to Wisconsin. Many times, like yeah. <laughs> Madison, Wisconsin. This is a pretty liberal state. This is a state with a very liberal history. This is the home of the La Follette family. Uh, etc. Michigan, you know, that one hurt. Pennsylvania, all of these things, Iowa, this astonishing
astonished me that this happened. It was obviously a wake up call to the Democratic Party. Look, you know, read, listen, liberal, see where you've gone wrong. How have you lost the confidence of these people that used to be your rank and file, used to be your core support? This was your base. This was the base of the party. And you've lost them. If I could pile on to a little bit of what you're saying that, and I will tell you this, in 2016, I didn't vote for either of them. I wrote myself in because I thought they'd vote for a terrible president. Um, and I, I lost, by the way. Um, <laughs> that the number of people that voted for Donald Trump, they thought that this, you know, what more could go wrong? You know, a big middle finger. All those reports that, that you cite about how they doubled down on insulting the very voters. And then I kind of look at this today where we have this uh, speech suppression yeah. and a misinformation campaign coming out around what's in voting bills and the like. I think that's just the next step. It's closely related because if you're, by the way, and I want to exempt Joe Biden from everything that I'm about to say, and, and exe- there's a bunch of Democrats who I really like and who uh, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders. I, I mean, I don't know about Biden. Uh, jury is still out on him. I mean, he's brand new as president. But, uh, you know, a lot of there's a lot of Democrats. He's, he's the fresh face of politics. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> fresh face, 78 year old. Yeah. Anyhow, but if you're a party and you, you, you know, you've just been handed this uh, this sort of shocking defeat. Remember, every pollster said that Hillary was going to win. The New York Times said it was 95 percent. You remember all this. Oh, sure. And so then the unthinkable happens. And if you are determined to not look in the mirror and not do a, a postmortem and not figure out where you went wrong, but instead you're going to you know do these other things. You're going to blame Russia. You're going to you're going to blame all sorts of external actors. You and I could probably go on for hours about that because I I thought if the Democrat and I said it over and over again, I said if the Democrats would have just acted like adults and played it straight, people would have seen how bad Trump was. And the fact that they didn't just gave Trump cover. And yep. it's all it did. Yep. You know, and when you come out like the the non-whistleblower, there is no whistleblower. None exists. And if you, if you look at the document that Adam Schiff brought forward, uh, it is overly lawyered. OK, it didn't come from some strange guy that thought he saw a problem. But the, you know, yep. the Russia piece. Well, I mean, some of it was true. I mean, the Russians did buy ads on Facebook, right? You know, we know that. But And the ads are actually kind of interesting if you want to look at them. But to blame the entire election on, on that is is ridiculous. And, uh, and they, you know, uh, they never did show that Trump was a, you know, a Russian agent or whatever the hell it was that they were trying to, you know, the collusion. They had every resource available. I'll, I'll tell you something. I never wrote about that. All those years uh, when that was the only news story. <laughs> I never wrote about it. I never, you know, it just was not my thing. And I, I was like, you know, this doesn't just, this doesn't ring true to me. It, it feels like someone trying to invent an excuse. When I watched that, I said, well, you know, you know, with the amount of money, the time, the access, including breach of client attorney privilege, being able to give out non-prosecution agreements, there's something there. They're going to find it. Yeah. I, I thought the premise was a little weird. Like here's a guy who's in his seventies, been in the public eye most of his adult life wants to become president and says, yeah, Russia's the way to go. I mean, it's okay. I guess, you know, I guess that I, I'm just like, it could happen. It could happen. turns out it didn't happen. I remember being relieved when Mueller, you know, when his report came out, 
and and saying, oh, thank goodness, the president is not a, a Russian agent. This that was a bad right. day for a lot. A lot. No, but I, I was really happy. That was like, that's that's good news. <laughs> you know, all these dire reports uh, on TV, you know, that were very scary. And all of a sudden it turns out it's not true. And it's funny because I, I've learned since then that the, I think I'm the only one in America that reacted that way. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's uh, uh, and I, look, I'm nerdy enough. Watched C-SPAN and what the what was done with the FISA court and what the Inspector Horowitz's report was in it. And I'm not, I kid you not, when they caught, you know, so so Comey, Sally Yates, Rod Rosenstein asked under oath at Senate Intelligence Committee, if you knew now, then what you knew now, would you have signed those FISA warrants? All of them answered no. No one asked the follow-up question, well, what did you know today that you didn't know now, then? Because the answer is just that we got exposed. <laughs> so this is the, and, yeah. and the reason they said that it wasn't politically motiv- motivated, and I kid you not, was that the IG, following his first report, they pulled 25 random cases of uh, appeals to the FISA court, and most of them the FBI had lied on. And <laughs> so the answer was, you see, we do yeah. this to everybody. We weren't just going after oh, Trump. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, I'm not a, a big Russiagate expert. One of the, I learned years ago, I, I wrote about Iran-Contra, and I remember interviewing this guy who was a great expert on Iran-Contra. This is in The Wrecking Crew. I got really interested in Iran-Contra for reasons that don't really matter anymore. But uh, I at one point, I... I uh, you know, I was talking to this guy and the conversation ballooned and went on much longer. And, and I said, uh, you know, this is really interesting. And he said, yeah, but you should stay away from it. People come into this. People get interested in Iran-Contra and they start studying it and they they never come out again. You know, <laughs> they go into the maze and they never come out again because they get drawn into it, you know, and they think it's so fascinating. And so I try to stay away from things like that. But the stuff about censorship, this is what's happening now. And it is real. This is you know, when I first started looking into this, I, I said, this can't be true. You know, I'm a liberal. I've been a liberal for a long time. Liberals believe in free speech. Liberals believe in protecting the speech, even of viewpoints they hate, because that's we know that's the principle. That's how uh, that's how the conversation works in America. You every viewpoint is is allowed its say, and then the public gets to choose from amongst you know the, this wide uh, array of choices. And we also know that if we were to, I mean, this is you know this seemed obvious to me that if you start shutting down, if you start censoring people or start shutting down certain viewpoints, they're going to come after you liberal. They're going to come after people like me. I I know this. My views are extremely unpopular in this country. And there's a long history of whenever there's been a censorship regime in this country, and it's happened a couple of times, it's always people on the left who are the target. During World War One, you know, remember the hysteria I was talking about with populism again in the McCarthy era, you know, this it's always mm-hmm. it's always people like me who are on the receiving end of these things. So that's not something that that we that, that we ever fool around with. And then I look I, I start reading, you know, in the you know, New York Times is calling for Joe Biden to appoint what do they call it? A reality czar. Exactly. You know, and, I mean it sounds it sounds Orwellian. It's college speech codes elevated to a federal level. There is one difference now between speak between censorship regimes in the past and that is that they have the tool to do it which right. never existed before and that's social media and they can see the power that social media has and it's scary 
It bothers me. I mean, I think these are these companies are monopolies and need to be broken up or regulated as monopolies. But the Democrats, uh, a lot of Democrats, not all of them, of course, but a lot of Democrats say the opposite. We want these companies to start pushing the mute button right. on our political opponents. And they're they're open about this. This is not a secret. This is really happening. And they're trying to convince their base that it's a good thing. And my argument to that is, okay, if we give someone the power to mute, what if we elect another Donald Trump? Now he's got the power. Yeah. To mute. That, now, uh, now. Yes. Yeah. That's a, that is a very good concern. That is a very worthwhile concern. And Tom, as a historian, there's, there's a, there, we had a, a man on, uh, Professor Dan Crane, who's at the University of Michigan Law School. His specialty is antitrust. And mm-hmm. what got me really interested in having him on the show is that he wrote a number of papers about the rise of fascism when there's monopolies. And he goes back to pre-World War II Germany, mm-hmm. and he says, okay, Germany had two airplane companies, two pharma companies. Hitler just compromised those, controlled the entire economy. Fast forward, here we are, 2021. We've got Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google, Twitter, Microsoft. It is terrifying. And uh, and look, part of populism was uh, the uh, fear and hatred of monopolies is very deep in the pop. That's one of the things they were very concerned with in the 1890s. Franklin Roosevelt was a you know had a strong antitrust uh, enforcement regime. Democrats used to believe in that. Uh, Jimmy Carter was the last president to actually enforce antitrust law in this country. Uh, since Reagan, though, Democrats get, have Republicans and Democrats agreed to not enforce it any longer. And so you have these companies with the most with the kind of power that John D. Rockefeller could only dream of, uh, a kind of power that we don't it boggles the mind, the sort of power that that uh, that Google and Facebook, et cetera, have over our lives. Amazon. It's it's extraordinary. And wasn't, uh, it, Reagan that, wasn't it Reagan that broke up AT&T into the baby bells and also the, the consent decree on IBM? Uh, uh, that, OK, so it sounds that like the AT&T thing, I believe, might have happened then. But Reagan was the one that brought in the the sort of new uh, thinking about antitrust, where it's all about consumer prices. And, yes. Uh, yes. And so you'd have this wave of consolidation. And so it's it's extraordinary to me that these companies are allowed to exist. But I think Google needs to be broken up. Amazon needs to be broken up. Microsoft needs to be broken up. Apple, I think, is in a different category, but they, we need to, they need to be looked at. There's too much power concentrated in too many places. Right. And uh, we're discovering power over the culture. How do we talk to each other? Well, the newspaper industry is dying. Dead. Uh, it turns out social media is how we talk to each other now. And these guys have a complete stranglehold on the way we converse. In your Guardian column, which I, I do, we are going to put a link up to that at richardhelpy.com. It's a catchy title. And I know if, even if you didn't write it, I take credit for it. It's really good. Uh, liberals want to blame right wing misinformation for our problems, period. Get real, period. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you you may mention of uh, debunking and shushing and censoring all well, tools for the same end. You you made mention, but of- de- debunking is what I do. That's that's what that's what people like me do. You know, we make we we use reason. We make yes. arguments. I mean, that's my whole life. 
if I didn't believe in the power of argument, I wouldn't have done what I've done. You know, I, I started my own magazine. I, I studied and studied. I write and write and write. The whole point of everything I've done in life is to persuade people, to, to try to convey information. If I thought that the way you do this is by pressing the mute button, you know, build a monopoly and then and then use your monopoly to force people to shut up. That is so contrary to anything that people like me believe in. Look, I'm more than 100% with you on that. To me, it's more dialogue, more facts. And so I, like I read the Georgia SB 202 and I read HR1. Okay, which John Sarbanes. Wow, wrote. you were way ahead of me on these. Yeah, I'm nerdy like that. Okay, <laughs> I, what can I tell you? <laughs> and then I started seeing the reports come out, and I go, "Well, that's patently false." Remember, and it reminds me of the uh, Maxwell Smart School of Logic. <laughs> well, you can't give a person water in line. Uh, actually, you can. Okay, it's just like every other. All right. Well, would you believe uh, absentee ballots are going to be restricted? Well, they're actually not. Okay, well, would you believe, and it goes on, the narrative changes until people are exhausted, and then there's another breaking news story. Are you familiar with the work of Mr. Matt Taibbi? (laughs) Matt was on my show. Matt, I believe, is a fantastic writer. I wish more people would listen to Matt Taibbi and read his writings. And like yourself, you didn't talk about this much, but my sense, and I know for sure from Matt that his friends on the left, when he broke liberal doctrine, they went a little berserk on him. I don't know what it is, but that did happen to me. And um, I was surprised by that uh, because I thought that what I was saying in The Guardian was like, uh, I'm just reminding my fellow liberals of the way we have always been, who we are, Mm -hmm. what we stand for. You know, the free speech, First Amendment, that is central to us. And uh, I put that up on, uh, you know, on Facebook and Twitter. And I was astonished at how much pushback I got and how uh, how strongly my uh, my erstwhile friends <laughs> disliked what I was saying. I mean, really surprised because uh, this seemed to me like I was making well. It seemed like a straightforward, no-brainer argument to me. And instead, I didn't have too many people deny that this is happening. I thought that's what people would say. It's like, no way, Frank, you, you, you've you lost it. This is not taking place. There is no censorship regime. Instead, people are saying, basically, we've got the power. We should use it. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I, I, a, co- I just couldn't believe that. I had a gentleman on my show uh, named Stuart Taylor as a group called Princetonians for Free Speech and going at the speech codes on campus and getting support because it's that is a, an area that got out of control. Mm-hmm. And it's not, to me, a big leap. If someone mm-hmm. says, well, you know what, if we can control what you can say on a college campus, then why not? We've got these tools. We can control what's said on Facebook and Twitter and, and the like. The a legitimate argument about deliberate misinformation and disinformation. Oh, yeah. Well, that's that's where this all comes from. It's a, it's an 80th ripple of Russiagate. And and that's that's sort of one of the things that, that annoys me about this, because I can see the same impulse in it, which is, I mean, they're right. The Russians did buy a lot of uh, misleading ads on Facebook. Yes, yeah, but it's, they, if you look at the, but, what was spent... I know, I know, I know. It's very, it's, it's infinitesimal. But here's, here's the thing, Rich. 
our entire culture is based on stuff like that. Remember, my first book was about the advertising industry. Yeah, <laughs> they, I'm, I'm here to tell you, they mislead people constantly. It's what they do. Or you look at Hollywood, you know, which that's how we get our, our historical information. It's not by reading books like mine. It's by watching movies. And it's like, that's not really what happened in World War II. You know what they say <laughs> in these movies? That's not really what happened. No, it's 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 not. And this is why I think that and I'm an eternal optimist, I'll tell you that, that I look at these platforms and it lets a, a person like me uh, read legislation, invite a guest like you to come on and we can talk about real things. And I, I've put forward, uh, you know, with the help of my guests, real policy solutions for some of the issues of the day. I'm not saying they're perfect, but they're frameworks. And if you ask the question, is it better than what we're getting from the people we elect, you know, that is higher to actually think about these things and come up with a solution. It's a resounding yes. I mean, I, I was just on Anthony Scaramucci's program called Mooch FM, and he said, okay, give me two policies. And well, well, what did you say? And I went through healthcare and firearms. I went, I, I went through, well, healthcare, I've had, if you count me as a healthcare knowledgeable person, I've had, we've had six healthcare knowledgeable people. We all agree. I've got one guy coming from like libertarian, another guy from public health perspective, all vectoring in. We all agree on what the solution looks like. It's not rocket science. But I, I think one of the lines in your book, you said we reformed healthcare without troubling the big pharma and private yeah. insurance. Well, that's Obamacare. It yeah. Was, you, and you nailed uh, it. By the way, I read the Obamacare bill because that's a, a, that was part of that's my That's what job. you do. <laughs> yes. Well, I did. I had a healthcare consulting business too. But you nailed it. And those are the two bad actors in this. And pharma is in a different category than private insurance. But the notion that you get your health care from your employer maybe made sense, maybe, to my grandfather who worked for Chrysler Corporation for 40 years. Yeah. But now you're talking about a gig economy and you're talking about employers that are really sophisticated about how to not have to give you health care. It makes zero sense. But guess what? If your employer gives you health care, you don't pay any taxes on that. And, you know, we used to have company cars. That, that was oh, a, yes. a benefit. Why don't you see those anymore? Because IRS said, guess what? If you get a car from your employer... That's income. That's right. They changed the tax code back in the yeah, 80s. Yeah, exactly. In firearms, everything else that's dangerous and requires skill, you have to go through like driver's licenses. You don't go from, here's your first license, drive a semi, a pilot. You don't get your <laughs> private pilot license and now you're driving a, an airliner. You know, you don't, you can't get a fireworks license and, and unless you show you know how to operate them and how to store them. You know, medical practice the same way. But with firearms... You can take an 18-year-old in a lot of states, walk into a gun store, walk out with a semi-automatic rifle and a thousand rounds. First time they ever bought a gun. Now, can we all agree that's just like crazy? We don't want to do that. Tom, let's jump to some, uh, I got some odds and ends, and I, I'm going to ask you to riff a little bit. You get a call today from the Republican Party, and they say, tell us what to do. What do you tell them? Oh, my God. <laughs> I don't know. The uh, Republicans are fascinating because all my life, that's been the party of big business, big money. And all of a sudden here, they aren't anymore. Uh, and they don't know what to do. They're lost. Uh, they're casting about trying to figure out their new purpose. Yeah, so they're coming to you and saying, hey, we're casting about, we're lost. Give yeah. it three bullet points. 
do A, B, and C. What do you do? I think if Trump had won, had run on universal health care in 2020, he would have won. <laughs> I think they okay. should become the party of universal health care. I mean, look, follow their voters. Universal health care, strong unions, and you know, uh, stop trying to. Uh, they, you know, they should completely drop all of their voter suppression stuff and do the opposite. Try to get everybody to vote. The Democrats. We got a really old guy in office. We've got some majorities. What do we do? Democrats, it's much simpler. So what I said about the Republicans, that's never going to happen ever in a million years. <laughs> but with the Democrats, I actually they could reform the Democratic Party really easily. And that is, you know, commission a inside the you know a party commission to look into what where they went wrong, what the hell happened. Do it, you know, study their own history, uh, uh, investigate how they went wrong and how they're going to remedy it, how they're going to rebuild their bridges with the, the people that you and I grew up among uh, and, and how they're going to become the majority party of Franklin Roosevelt again, because it's, it, it, it wouldn't be that hard to do. But they would have to kiss all that Wall Street money goodbye. You know, that would have to go. But uh, uh, and all that big pharma money and their their great friendships with the guys. Well, that, would, that would be a thing. Valley. Yeah, guys, <laughs> hey, you know, quit taking money from those people and start legislating for the common man. Yeah, exactly. And and there's believe me, the political rewards for that are enormous. You like uh, Roosevelt's Democratic Party. You know, uh, they held the majority in in uh, the House of Representatives until from 1930 until 1994 with only two brief interruptions. They were always the majority party in this country. That's the world you and I grew up in. Well, they can be that again. I mean, whoever captures that, you know, that sort of populist spirit, that's the that's going to be the majority party. And it's funny, right now both parties want that and they 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 talk it and they reach out to it and both parties have this anti-populist wing also that wants to suppress voting uh, or censor conversations. You know, so they're both pulling in both directions at the same time. I wonder which one's going to do it. It's possibly neither. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and look, I'm 100% with you, and I've said this on uh, many occasions. A, a strategy that relies on turnout or a low turnout it, to me is anathema to what we need to become as a country. Yeah, yeah um, exactly. And we've, I think we've also shown, too, that you don't necessarily need to take big money. I mean, Trump didn't in his first run. Because you can reach audiences. He was a media creation. He's, you know, he's uh, people will be writing about his his victory forever. But the Hillary outraised and outspent him two to one. Yep. Uh, Biden. Uh, it was a little different this year, twenty twenty, because Trump was obviously the incumbent. But Biden still outraised and outspent him. It wasn't quite two to one, but it was substantial. Uh, and Biden specifically outraised him from Wall Street, Silicon Valley, pharma, the commanding heights of the economy, Hollywood, yeah. the people who matter. Trump had who did Trump have in his corner? He had big oil. <laughs> he had casinos. He, you know, he had these sort of. Uh, Let me ask you this time. If you had to advise the news outlets, either, whether it's cable or the legacy broadcasters or the former print media, what would you tell them to do? So un unfortunately, Rich, this is a uh, this is a question that um, where any answer I would propose or any any suggestion I would propose would be by definition wrong, because you talk to Matt Taibbi. This is his theory. Everybody has become Fox News. Everybody mm -hmm. has become, you know, politics for entertainment, getting outraged at one another as a form of entertainment. And I hate it. And I hate what it's doing to us. I bet you have seen the Fox News effect on people, you know. Oh, yeah. And how it changes their personality. And I, I, I've seen that and it, it it's disturbing. And now MSNBC and CNN, they're doing the same thing. Precisely. Same formula. 
I hate it, but it's for them by their standards, this is a winner. You know, they've got a lot more viewers now than they did a few years ago. Yeah, it's a, no, it's the outrage centers. And just like you and I find that repulsive, that I think enough people say, you know what, we know we're getting played and we need to be able to have honest reporting and like, look, what's in the bill? And that's the thing I keep asking people. Every time someone tells you dislike this or dislike that or hate this person, I hate that person. It's like, okay, stop. What's in the bill? We're about to look at an infrastructure bill. We're going to be talking to Professor Rick Geddes from Cornell University, who's going to break down what's in the bill. The president needs to say what's in it that's not really infrastructure. Yeah, exactly. Tom, you've been a great guest, and I apologize that we've gone over. I could hope that you'll agree to come back at some time. Oh, absolutely. I'd be I'd be glad to. That's great. Is there anything that we didn't cover today that we perhaps should have discussed, or is there any closing thoughts that you have? Well, not really. I think this was this is one, a, a wonderful conversation, and I really like the sort of your the core idea of your show, which is that ultimately we have to live with each other. This is a democracy, and we have to get along with one another. And you know, like I want to just re- echo a, a statement that you made at the very start of the show. This country is filled with fundamentally decent people, and that's the core value of populism is that we like the people. I, I took my title, the people know, from a famous book from the 30s by a guy called Carl Sandburg. Carl Sandburg, another sh- great Chicagoan, he wrote something called The People, Yes. Mm. And it's a celebration of the American vernacular and of ordinary Americans and how we talk to each other. And it's a very 1930s thing to celebrate ordinary Americans. And I feel like nowadays we are doing the opposite in this country. We are denouncing ordinary Americans. Yes. We think that they are diseased in some way and that they're psychologically, um, you know, that there's some pathology has got them. And I just want to say, I still believe in the people. Yes, I still believe in ordinary Americans. And I think that's very close to who we are when we can actually talk to each other in an, in a, in a normal way, not screaming and not not social media and that sort of thing. And when look, I think your historical perspective is a great step in that direction. Uh, we talk about the you know deliberate attempt to divide us, black versus white, and that same model being applied. Oh yeah, the the, the politically, it's just crazy what's going on now. And I know you said that your book, "The People Know," is your last political book. I hope. You mean it's your most recent because I think you've got a lot of gas in your tank. And I, I know I would sure love to hear more from you. And, I, and I'm sure our readers will, too. All right. Thanks a lot, Rich. This is Rich Helpy signing off on the Common Bridge, where we talk about the issues of the day, the opportunities of the moment, and the policy solutions that can help us address them. We've been with our guest, Thomas Frank. So long. Till next time. You have been listening to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge podcast, recording and post-production provided by Stunt3 Multimedia. All rights are reserved by Richard Helpy. For more information, visit richardhelpy.com.